Welcome everyone once again to the Immigrant's Journey podcast. I am your host, Carmenetta, and today we have with us Asif Hadir, who has worked as a negotiator, also as in business intelligence and currently in cybersecurity. And Asif is originally from Bangladesh and his move his family has moved to the United States when he was a teen. Welcome to the show, Asif. Hello, glad to glad to join you. How are you? I am doing very well. I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests about their background and what was life like back home before you moved to the United States. It was a uh, it was it was a teenager-ish, uh, but then again, you know, it was in a third world country, developing country. Um, things were things were uh, politically volatile, uh, but family-wise, it was beautiful. <laughs> um, you know, because we we have a huge uncle and aunties and cousins that you know we grew up with, so. Uh, to have access to the family, uh, to go see them every other week or every week, hang out with them, I hang out with the cousins, and my uncles and aunties will come and visit, uh, which is something that I miss. Uh, you know, doesn't happen often in USA because I don't have that many family here. Uh, but to have that many family back home, um, I definitely miss that. Uh, but, you know. That's how it was. And it was just like family and just hanging out with family. But I remember politics was very much ingrained into our brain because we felt it um, nonstop everywhere in the country. Like it's something that we couldn't avoid. Um, And I say that because as a teenager, you know, a lot of the teenagers that I've seen, I've seen after I come to the U.S., they're not into politics. They don't see what politics is, how politics affects them. Um, so I, I wanted to say that because I felt when I got to us that, Hey, people don't really care about politics around here. But for us, for me, it was like a whole reality. It was based on politics. Was yeah. that part of the reason why your family left Bangladesh because of the political turmoil or they just wanted to try a different country? Um, well, b- uh, back in eighties, Ronald Reagan had a program for immigrants from other countries to come and work in us. Um, and my father was selected as one of those people to come to U.S. and work in U.S. And, um, you know, uh, he, he came to U.S. when I was three years old. Um, and I moved here when I was 14. I moved here with him when I was 14. So he's been living in the U.S. for a long time. Uh, and then we all migrated. Uh, my two big brothers and my mom, we migrated to U.S. to live with him in the U.S.A. What was the biggest culture shock for you when you left Bangladesh and moved to the United States? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I'm sort of fascinated by how orderly things are in this country. Um, you know, from landing to the GF, landing in the JFK and travel to the new residence. Uh, one thing that I was fascinated by at age 14 is that how smoothly all the cars are moving. Um, you know, you don't have to talk about traffic. You're just talking about the fact that there's traffic and there's moving and they're not really violating any traffic rules and laws, which first of all, I wasn't aware of those traffic rules and laws like that. Um, (laughs) and and, you know, I experienced it for the first time actually in us, uh, over time I realized, okay, this is what you do as a driver. 
you learn all these traffic rules and laws and you obey them. And if you don't, you get a ticket. Uh, but at 14, not having a driver's license, not never never drove, driven before, I just realized how orderly things are. And, uh, you know, to this day, I'm still fascinated by how things are so orderly in USA. Well, I, I'm not just saying USA. I think it's uh, very visible in a lot of countries. But to me, it was a contrasting difference that, wow, look at this, you know, so orderly. It's probably the contrasting difference between first and third world countries. Like having grown up in the United States, I never noticed that because I was only seven when I moved there. But I noticed the reverse when I went to visit my brother in Argentina for his wedding the lack of order that's there. And it was exactly what you were saying about the rules of the road and driving. Over there, stoplights, those are suggestions. Like nobody obeys those things. You just kind of moderately slow down, look, look, keep going. Sometimes they don't even slow down. It was chaos. I was terrified to drive out there. <laughs> it's really, really wild. Yes, yes. Yes, and, and, and California roll, right? That's what they call it. When you're going to come to a stop sign, you just roll right by the stop <laughs> sign. Call it a California roll. Like, oh, be grand. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, like I was in the military. So when you're in a military installation, things are 10 times more intensified. So when you talk about local traffic laws, it's like it's 10 times more intensified in a military base because you have to follow them by the dot, you know. Um, so... Me, I was stationed overseas for a long time, and I was stationed in many of the bases uh, for a long time. Um, I still am, actually. And um, it's it's amazing. Like, people follow rules here. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, they so do. So much that everything that you want to see orderly, uh, it's here, you know. Um, uh, when I was overseas, you know, you saw the trains running on time. Trains are running clean and smooth. That orderliness, I don't, I don't know if that was the same as U.S. It's something about U.S. that is just like, people are just fond of it, I guess, the rules, right? Um, but not all city follows the same way. Like, you know, when I was in Korea, everything was just quiet, peaceful, nice, moving along, you know. But in U.S., it's just like something different. Something about it is different. I have yet to pinpoint it out with my fingers. But uh, yeah, like I was in Korea, I was in London, you know, the London subways are not, they don't call it a subway, they call it what? The tube. Something else. They call the it the tube, tube, yeah. Right, tube. And, and, and in Korea, you know, it's just like something about it is so clean and nice, but it doesn't feel orderly. <laughs> then again, maybe it's just that orderly that I'm not used to, right? Yeah. It feels foreign to me. Now that I know the American orderliness, now I'm thinking like, well, that's a foreign orderliness. <laughs> <laughs> so what's something about your culture that you miss or that you have missed since moving to the United States? Uh, I, I kid you not, it's just that one kind of specific chicken curry that my um, auntie made. And, and, you know, she's the only one. I don't think I've ever tasted a chicken curry as good as that one my whole entire life. So what do I miss about other than food? Um, that, that getting together and having that get together, right? Yeah. Having with the that, family. With the family. Right. Uh, and this are like families of 100, 200 people. Oh, wow. Just getting together. That's amazing. It's big. Yeah. That's a big family. And, um, you know, I don't know how, but, you know, when I guess when I didn't work, you know, when I wasn't an adult with a job and responsibilities, everything felt like holidays um, 
you know, every other week, every time we got together as a family. So the weekends were just like a long holidays for us, you know, it's like everybody was always getting together. Um, I noticed that it, in, felt, it felt nice and good. I know. noticed that in Argentina too when I was visiting my brother. Like I was there for three weeks, and every weekend everyone would get together in the park, and they would bring their meat and their drinks and their grill, <laughs> and they would just sit around, play cards, right. have conversations, and just be there for right. hours in each other's They're company, right. which is um, totally yeah. unheard of in the United States. It's just not how people socialize, which is really interesting. And what's something interesting about your culture that most people don't know about? Wow, that's a... Hmm. Or were you too young when you left that you don't really recall? I, 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 I would say just that, yeah, I, I don't recall. What's unique about our culture is that I lived in Hawaii for, for a while, for three years. And uh, when I lived in Hawaii, it was, it was called the melting pot of cultures melting pot of culture so you know you'll see philippine philippines japanese uh, portuguese chinese uh all kinds of nationality so everybody's pretty much like you know has some sort of uh background from portuguese countries or like you know like some sort of japanese so you meet a person they'll tell you a name and you say like well that's not it doesn't sound like you know hawaiian name where's that from They're like no it's hawaiian we're generational hawaiian but you know we have japanese ancestors that's and, very interesting yeah and japanese ancestors but we got mixed with some portuguese blood and some you know uh, uh different different types of uh, cultures that came together in hawaii uh, one of the things that i I, I realized after that long time living in Hawaii is that we have some similarities there. Mm, um, with Bangladeshi that, culture. Right, right. So for me growing up, I, I've never questioned these sort of things. Like, you know, who's who? Everybody was just from Bangladesh. <laughs> you know, uh, everybody was from Bangladesh. Nobody will go around and say like, well... I'm, I'm sort of Iranian with a little bit of butt from Genghis Khan or something like that. You know, they don't, they don't talk about it that way. Everybody's just from Bangladesh. Um, but over time, as I, you know, studied conflict resolution and I studied history, uh, I'm a big fan of conflict resolution. So one of the one of the obvious things I had to do is to learn history because you don't understand conflict unless you understand bits of histories. And I understand like bits of all the histories, except for knowing any of them properly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but it helps with the conflict analysis, right? Um, so in Bangladesh and like many, many parts of India, if you look at, they are sort of a melting pot that started a long time ago. And over time they closed off like, you know, immigration that happened in India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, Bangladesh. They're kind of like historical melting pot where recently they're not really taking in any outsiders. Mm. Like what, their, their immigration policy is doing immigration that? Immigration policy, yes, 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 yes. Well, well, actually, put it like this. There was no immigration policy back then. Mm -hmm. It just happened. Right? I see. Um, but as you look at Bangladesh, you know, you're thinking like, okay, what, why is my uncle married to somebody who does not look like my mom? Right? Now, this kind of questions never came up. Right? Um, yeah. So like, you know, if, yeah, if, 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 I look at, if I look at somebody from like my closest auntie, she looks different than from my mom. Why is that? 
Well, then I can start thinking about like Genghis Khan. You know, you're thinking about like somebody that came from Mongolia, somebody that came from Turkmenistan, and how did they migrate over to Bangladesh? What was the pathway that it took to get here? Yeah, there's a lot of. Um, it gets fascinating. It really is, but like in America, it's so pronounced because in America, everybody is American hyphen, Amer African American, Italian American, Irish American. So everybody immediately knows that what what your ancestral background is. Whereas in most countries, you're just you're just Irish, you're just Brazilian, you're just Bangladeshi, even though you have this whole historical background. Yes, which is super yes, interesting. and and, and that, that's something that I found interesting personally. But I'm not sure how many of your podcast listeners will find this interesting because you know uh, many, many countries have the similar story as Bangladesh, but to me it was unique because I never paid attention to that. How did how did somebody from Bangladesh end up uh, not looking like somebody from south of Bangladesh or north of Bangladesh? What's the difference between a port city and a non-port city? And and you look at you look at part of the Bangladesh and you say, wait, hold on a second. These people are speaking the same language actually, but how come I don't understand him? He's speaking Bengali. But I don't understand him. You know, it's like a corner of Bangladesh literally has no. Uh, they're speaking Bengali, but they're just. I can't understand them, right? Um, and you know, if I speak Bengali to them, they understand me. So what 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 happened there, right? But that's the thing about port city and non-port city, right? So when you're talking about a British India, um, the British India Company, uh, East India Company actually came to Bangladesh and they landed in Calcutta, which is. Uh, West Bengal, which is part of India. Um, and they landed, they bought all the people with them, mercenaries and uh, uh, seamen and, you know, everybody that came with the boat to do the trades. And they stayed behind, you know. And and over time, they just became Bangladeshi. They didn't, they didn't fall out the rule of like, oh, I came from Portugal, actually. They just integrated. You know, uh, I'm just part they of... They integrated. They've been generational, right? So, you know, in Hawaii, I look at somebody from uh, from Hawaii and I say, well, you look Japanese. Like, yeah, we're Japanese, but we've been here for generations. So um, they consider themselves then, American? Exactly. Well, yeah, they're, they're completely Hawaiian. Um, in, in Hawaii, there's a Hawaiian identity, actually. The first, they sort of identify as Hawaiian, and then they say we're American or not. So what was your experience integrating when you came to America? Did you feel like you fit in straight away? Did it take a while? What was that process like? When I first came, uh, first six months, I lived in uh, New York. So that was not a problem at all. Yeah, because everybody's <laughs> Everybody from everywhere there. fine. But then again, uh, about two hours, three hours south of New York is Delaware. And we moved there. <laughs> Ooh, what was uh, yeah. <laughs> Delaware like? Well, back in 1999, before, you know, it, it got overpopulated uh, with people from New Jersey, New York, uh, and Pennsylvania, it was a quiet state. You know, this is just 20 years ago, like quite relevantly, right? Um, because when we got there, uh, you know, everybody's like, oh, look, 10 years ago, this thing didn't exist here. 10, 10 years ago, this didn't exist. What didn't exist? So as I'm looking back, at, like, you know, the, the main roads and big, big buildings and big, all this you know, shopping centers and stuff like that. That's when I got there. And 20 years later, when I went back, I was like, oh, my God, this none of this existed back then. Right. 
uh, because people moved in uh, because the economy changed, the situations changed. People started moving into Delaware because it was one of those uh, states that was good for raising family, you know, good for taxes, good for just communicate, uh, commute, commute to work, and things like that. Uh, even jobs, you know. Um, so back then when I moved in, I was one of the few Bengalis that I knew that was going to school. You know, there are some people that were there, but they were all professional workers and stuff like that. But me, I was like going to school. So it was like looking for teenagers of my age uh, to hang out with, to associate with. There wasn't that many. Um, so it, it was a it wasn't a cultural shock. It was a cultural challenge. You know, um, I've 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 always had the view of, you know, the, the ability to just look at other people respectfully um, and try to, you know, find common ground and, you know, trying to understand what they're going through. Uh, but <laughs> my problem was I couldn't speak English. Right. You know? OK. Yeah. So when I'm when I migrated at 14, I couldn't speak English. So even though. I had an intention. I wasn't able to explain it. So, and that affected me all the way through my adulthood in many, many ways. Because you know, I'll get confused about like why is somebody not understanding me? They're they're giving me this vibe that look like you know they're confused by it. They have something against me or anything, just something negative or positive. I just didn't get it. And and over time, it challenged me a lot because you know, is this something I said? Did I use the wrong word? And that's very possible. I don't think even to this day, like I struggle with communication, but you can never perfect it. Like according to me, you always have to strive on bettering your communication skills. So yeah, that was my experience of cultural challenge. How do you communicate not only just by words? How do you have that good verbal presence, physical presence as well to merge them and communicate properly? Uh, I know a lot of people didn't have to struggle through that, but to me, I was like, well, at least in my struggle, I understood it differently than somebody who doesn't have to struggle with that. Like somebody spoke English all their life, all of a sudden they're understanding, oh, that your physical language matters. Now you're learning it just because it doesn't really, it's something, it's like a hobby type. For me, it was like, well, this is the only way, the physical language, you got to get it right. And then your verbal language and all the stuff will come in place and, you know, you'll be able to articulate yourself better. How long did it take you? Because like when I moved to the United States, I was seven. So it took me about a year to be able to speak English. But I think you learn faster when you're a kid than when you're a teen. What what, what was the process like for you? A process for me was that I left high school, sort of um, got the exemption to do not to do ESL anymore. You know, English as second language, right? Um, that was great. But when I left and I went to military, um, you know, it was just like, well, no, that's not good enough. You got to do better than that. Um, so I was, uh, I, 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 I was, um, what is it called? Immersed into the English speaking population. Right. So I didn't go home to speak Bengali to my mom and dad or my family. I didn't go home every night. I was in the military. So, you know, everybody in the military spoke English. So if you didn't speak English, you know, you're not communicating right. So I was immersed into that communications of how to communicate in English. And uh, to be honest, I learned it in a foul way. Okay, explain. So, you know, like at home, I would watch Scarface over and over. (laughs) Gotcha. I know exactly what (laughs) you're saying. (laughs) You didn't learn proper literary English. You learned literary English. But in military, depending on who you're talking to, you cannot speak in a foul way. Right. 
in military, everybody's famous for cursing, you know? Uh, so I took that to the next level. I was like, well, as long as I curse, it doesn't matter how I say it. Right? <laughs> Everybody will understand. People will say like, hey, he figured it out, right? They'll say like, I, I get your intention here, you know? Because foul languages have that, you know, uh, oomph behind it that says like, I get your intention. You know, it's not, it's not so much of your capacity and opportunity to speak. I get your intention, you know? Um, and, and uh, you know, but you can't talk to a senior leadership in the same way. So I think that helped me a lot to iron myself out to say like, okay, look, you got to adjust how, how you speak to everybody. So that way you're able to articulate well with the senior leadership, right? So you have to watch your language as you speak to somebody who you're very comfortable with. So that way you can articulate yourself properly to everybody who's a stranger or who's a senior leader, somebody that, you know, it, it depends on how you communicate with them, what the outcome in your uh, life will be like. Definitely. <laughs> what do you feel like the United States has to offer that's not available back home, like as a country? So in, in a conflict analysis, uh, one of the things that I always point out to any country, right? Three things that each country will have is uh, a resource, a knowledgeable population, not educated. You know, I'm not saying educated. I'm saying knowledgeable population. And the third component is the allies, right? Not allies that will harm you, but allies that are just neutral, allies that are positively friendly, allies that are, you know, there to help you, right? But not a straight up known enemy. So if you look at those three things, that's what makes any culture, any country either go up or go down. However, you want to justify that go up or down. Because if you have a resource, that resource is a curse to you. And there's no point of having that resource because now if your resource is a curse, your knowledgeable population will indicate that your pop, sorry, if your resource is a curse to you, that will indicate your population is not really knowledgeable about the resource. You mean like right. in the instance of third world countries where their resources are kind of exploited by more exploited military, by, yeah. military right. powerful countries? Right. Or, 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 or not a community, but a class of people, right? Uh, uh, I, 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 I have a deeper way of speaking about that, but I, let me use that on Bangladesh, right? You can look at this, you can take those three terms and use it in any country. But if I used to use it on Bangladesh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that I can explain it correctly is that if you have resources, if you have knowledge of a population and then you have allies, that's how you build the future of your country. That's, that's where you start, right? So Bangladesh, as far as allies goes, it's 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 uh, it's a very very complicated matter because our allies are literally the ones that are uh, choking us with water. <laughs> right, right. Think about that for a second. Right, you know, I like water is a you know it's a necessary yeah, yeah. it's a necessary thing, but it can also yeah. be used to drown you. So the yes. so Bangladeshi allies are not actually their allies, is what you're saying. So, so Bangladesh, has, as far as resource goes, um, you know, we are we are still exploring those resources, uh, but they're not coming to fruition because the the allies that we have, um, we're not able to you know get them the 
right kind of resource, that product that we need to provide them with, right? So let me give you an example. Uh, the populations that are in Bangladesh, they're so ingrained into the po- political side of things. Like they see everything, in my opinion, they see everything in politics space. Like if, if I'm doing this for my country, it's because of the political party that I'm part of. I'm doing it for the political party, right? And then they're, they're like... In my opinion, there's not that many neutral folks that are saying, look, let's just do this for the country. You know, that would be the knowledgeable population, right? Um, what would be the resource here, right? The resource of Bangladesh, they don't have oil, you know, they don't have much of something to export, right? Um, and as far as ally goes, you have India and Myanmar. That's that's who you're bordering with. And then on the north, you have China. And the Tibet Plateau, right, in China, is where all the source of water starts, all the river. Okay, so that river flows through India and comes to the Bangladesh. So there's about two rivers particularly that goes through India that comes into Bangladesh and ends in Bangladesh. And guess what's happening right now? China is putting dams on, on the river, river line to create hydroelectric for themselves. And when that happens, now you have a problem downstream because the water is either drying up or too much water coming in, flooding everything. And this has been a problem for Bangladesh for years now. And not just China is doing that in Tibet Plateau, but India is also doing the same. They're creating dams to you know, provide more water for their uh, own people. And in, in seasons, there'll be a drought. And another season, there'll be a flood in Bangladesh. Right. Um, and as far as, uh, uh, you know, when you don't have the ally, what do you do? You know, you got to go to your resource next. You don't have the resource and you don't have the knowledgeable population that will say, I, I don't want to demean anybody. But at the same time, you get my point about knowledgeable population is that now your loyalty is matched. Your loyalty is to say, let's take care of the country, not the political parties. Right. Um, so that's where I'm at. Yeah. So is that where you feel? Is that where you think that um, America has maybe an advantage or something to offer that your own home country doesn't? is political alliance here here's a here here's the same resource and allies and the knowledgeable population into play in the u.s uh you have uh four neighbors right you have pacific you have atlantic and you have canada and you have mexico right mexico is top trading partner of the united states so is canada so when you have allies like these two and ocean that nobody can cross your ally situation is taken care of. Your, like, the worst enemy that U.S. has is, is nowhere to be found on the map if you look at the U.S. US map, right? Um, water bodies, right? We talked about water bodies in Bangladesh. My God, there's water bodies flowing through U.S. left and right. I'm talking about north to, north to south, east to west. There's water bodies everywhere. So it, very easy to navigate through uh, U.S., um, and knowledgeable population, right? What we're talking about is knowledgeable population. Look, you can say the same that Bangladesh has political divisions and U.S. has political divisions. The neutrality of people that is always getting uh, hit by the both sides, uh, left and right, is that these ignorant people that are not paying attention to political discourses are the problem. No, they're the best part of the United States. Because they're the one that's swinging the uh, population, uh, uh, sorry, swinging the administration back and forth. That's why you see that continuous flow of 
somewhat of a Republican, Democrat, Democrat, Republican, Republican, Democrat coming in time to time. Yeah, it's a nice little so, ping pong match. Nice little ping pong match. And and that's what makes the country, people talk about this country being divided. This country has been always divided. But if I'm making money off of that news of calling it divided country, of course I'm going to call it divided because that's how I make my money. A lot of the pundits, a lot of the you know book writers will always say, "Look, look at this country. How's divided it is? It's not. It's how, it's how it's been the whole time." Um, but those three things really does work out for the United States. You know, the resources that we have. You're talking about natural gas. You're talking about you know big oil reserve. U.S. has that, and it's our own oil, right? Um, what other resources do we have? The river system, right? To, to be able to come down Colorado River, come down the Mississippi River and go out to the world and trade, it's a big advantage. And having an ally like Canada and Mexico uh, is another big advantage. So, yeah, does Bangladesh have it? No. But does the U.S. have it? Absolutely. Yeah, True. definitely. Do you think that you will be living in the United States for the rest of your life? Or do you have ambitions and aspirations to live elsewhere in the world? So when I lived uh, overseas for nine years... Um, at the, at, by the time I left the United States, I was already in the United States for four years. Um, so at the end of that nine-year overseas tours, I, I, I always joke that every time I have to come back to the U.S., I need a visa. <laughs> what? Because I'm a U.S. citizen. <laughs> yeah, I'm a U.S. citizen who needs a visa. So finally, they sent me to uh, Colorado to to be uh, to be stationed in Colorado. I was like, oh, finally, I got my permanent visa to come back to the U.S. Um it's it's always a struggle to find a place to live in uh, because that's how it's been for me to always say, uh, is this where I live for the rest of my life? Or is this something that will change in three years from now? Uh, and it has been. I, I can tell you how many cities I've lived in so far. I haven't lived anywhere more than a three-year stretch. Like when I lived in the UK, I actually lived there for four years, but I was gone for a year in the middle. And uh, so, you know, it's like a, how long did I live there? Actually, I lived there for like 36 months or so. How do you compare the different places that you've lived in? Absolutely mind-boggling, you know, because you live somewhere for so long. And because I'm bl- I am blinded to the fact that what, where I'm living is so fascinating that by the time I'm leaving and I by the time I leave and I look back, I said, wow, I was not aware of any of that. Oh, wow. Okay. There. Give me an example of that. Um, so England, for example, uh, that was my first duty station. And when I was living there, I went to Warwick Castle, you know, and I was like, I would never go back to another castle ever again. It was just boring. It was just boring. And I went to a, uh, I went to uh, Germany to visit. And then, you know, in Germany, I saw another castle. I saw castles in Czech Republic recently. And when I went to Czech Republic to see the castle, it was mind-boggling, right? Because obviously the European countries have different different types of castle, and it indicated their way of living and the the resources and their allies and their uh, uh, knowledgeable population, as I would say, um, in in different different countries. So when I went to UK and I said, "Well, I don't, I don't really like the castle," but I went to Czech Republic, I was like, "Can I rent this castle?" Is it possible? <laughs> what they say, you know. Uh, uh, like actually one of the castles are rentable you can rent it and you can live there uh but then you can you have to live in that country so i was like that's not gonna happen uh well the reason i'm saying that is because none of them i was knowledgeable enough about enough to say like 
this is the relevance of why I'm here and what's going on, right? So as I'm living in a country, I don't really know what it is that I'm looking at until I leave that country. And in my memory, I start seeing things and connecting the dots like, wait, I was actually living there. And I saw this, but I just didn't know what that was, right? Because I didn't reach out to the right person and ask the right question or nobody was there to explain it to me, period, right? So that's what I say about the difference is like, you know, after I, le- I was in Iraq, I was in UK, I was in uh, Korea, I was in Hawaii, uh, like really didn't ask the question. And, but over time as I'm like exploring, like, wait, what's the relationship between uh, Iraq and UK? <laughs> what it is that I'm seeing here that's relevant to Iraq, you know, because you go to the British Museum, right? You go to the London Museum, you see all of these artifacts and I'm like, Okay, cool. I took pictures of it. You know, that's about it. <laughs> but years later, you realize what, what I've been looking at. And that's the difference between each cities is that each cities is in my memory right now in a different, different fashion, right? Because to learn about the relationship between South Korea and Japan is, is mind-boggling. Because, you know, when I was living in South Korea, our biggest threat was North Korea. You know, when I, lived, when I, when I landed in South Korea, they said, you are nothing but a speed bump at this point in this location. So when they come down, when they attack South Korea, you're nothing but a speed bump. So be aware of that and don't have a high expectation that you will survive. Wow, that's intense. And uh, that's tense, right? But, you know, if, if like, we didn't even care for North Korea that much. You know, that was just a briefing. That was just a word that somebody said. We didn't care. We lived our life in North, South Korea normal. We partied, we went out, we, you know, we had all the fun. But when you left, you're like, yeah, you're not just looking at one threats here. You're looking at everything possibly that could have went wrong, but we didn't see it. I didn't see it. I didn't pay attention to it because my priority was somewhere else, you know? Absolutely. Um, and that's the difference between each place is that, you know, as I look back, my memory serves me different tidbits and I say, wow. Yeah, we see what we focus on, that's for sure. Is there some bit of knowledge that you possess now that you feel would have been useful when you first moved to the United States? None. <laughs> None. No. You just learn as you go, and it's great. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, exactly. Like, would I have my life any different than the way it is right now? Absolutely not, right? So as I'm thinking about it, would I enjoy the information that was given to me uh, uh, differently? I, I probably wouldn't enjoy it, you know, because that information... Right, because you were only 14. Right? That information was thrown... Right. That information was just thrown at me and it didn't stick, right? Now that I'm an adult, I'm able to articulate information that comes to me in my own way, in my, with my own experience. Yeah, I think that's fine. Just, just, the way, just the way the information is coming, I am volunteering myself to have that information, use that information as I need it. I, I, would, say, I would say some of the information uh, that an immigrant would need today is is you know something that I am inspiring to do right now is to go to State Department. Um, I, I left military specifically to join the State Department. Okay, and what did you want to do there? I, I, my my goal, my mission behind it is that you know the way the whole rest of the world sees the United States versus how it is actually. Uh, uh, it needs to be said, right? It needs to be said because. I don't know if everybody's like me who listens to a story and believes it 
and visualizes it and then just lives with it. Like if everybody's like me, everybody must have some storyteller in their life to tell them, look, this is what you know, but I'm going to have to give you the counterpart of that. Right. Counterpart of it is that, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, uh, people didn't see us the way the media portrayed the military in Afghanistan. Right. It, those are real people. Right. And their story needs to be told that like, look, you know, you say like, oh, U.S. presence in Afghanistan and then media will spin it in so many ways and they will articulate their narrative. I say, well, that's good. That's their story. The media story is with that narrative, with that understanding. And there's got to be an individual who does the counter narrative of that. And, and I wanted to do that for, for State Department as a, as a, you know, I was an ambassador to the foreign nation as a U.S. military personnel wearing the U.S. uniform, right? But I wanted to do it in, outside of the uniform. I wanted to do it as a, as a foreign service officer who goes out to the countries to countries and does the same storytelling in my ways, you know? Um, because it makes a difference who's the story. Absolutely, telling. you're going to get a different story. You know, the, the, yeah, if, if, if Brian Williams from NBC tells you a story, you, you will hear him and then you'll take it. But then again, you take it from me, it might be a little different perspective because, you know, a lot of the countries that are around the world, like, you know, I started learning foreign languages just to go to State Department so that way I can say that same story in their own languages, but it's coming from me. Right. I, I started learning Mandarin. I started learning Farsi. Uh, uh, you know, I want to brush up on my Arabic. Um, you know, I speak Pakistani. I speak, you know, Indian language. I speak Bengali language. I want to tell all the stories in these languages so that way I can articulate to them like, look, what the reality that you see in a square box versus what the reality is. I'm here in person. Take my word for it. You know, and I know U.S. State Department is full of people like me who's going around the world, telling the same story. You know, there's a lot of people that are uh, of foreign background in State Department that are able to articulate, like, look, what you see in the news is not all the U.S. is. There's more to that. And I'll tell you a funny story behind it is that, you know, when I came to the United States first, I thought everything was like Seinfeld. <laughs> Explain was like Seinfeld. for people that don't know what Seinfeld is. <laughs> so Seinfeld, you know, it, it, a lot of people watch Friends, but I grew up watching Seinfeld. I, I didn't really watch Friends. Um, Friends and Seinfeld had this thing of where you see a street and you see a house and you see an apartment. So everybody lives inside of an apartment in a tall building and they lived on the side of the street. And then... From that side of the street, you don't really see anything else. Like unless you research it, maybe unless you have some information source that I didn't have growing up because we watched public television. We didn't have cable television. So in a public television, you know, we were watching like, okay, you had just have a, like a building and a road. But then again, you watch Baywatch, right? You see Baywatch on TV sometime. And you're like, oh, so at the end of the road, there's a beach. <laughs> and this beach is sunny and it has like all this uh, uh, lifeguards wearing, you know, red outfit. Um, so that's, that's as narrow my story is at age 14 that I came to the United States. I was like, wait, I'm living in a house, not an apartment. Now I'm, I'm able to learn that for myself. Right. Um, and then, you know, um, uh, what else? Like beach. Oh, where's the beach? Oh my God. The J- Jones beach in New York. I was like, this is not the beach I saw on TV. Oh, no, cause that was California. <laughs> <This is> terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that was California. That was Florida or something like that, right? But when I went to Florida, it was like obvious, like, oh, my God, difference between Manhattan where Seinfeld and Friends is 
and Florida is like about a couple of days of driving, you know? Um, yeah, sometimes it's difficult so to conceptualize the, how large conceptualize, the United States right, is and right, how vast the lands right. are. And I think that needs to be that needs to be told as part of a story because as 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 we are like even somebody who lives in Texas, I think you know when somebody tells a story, I I frame it in such a small window, like you would do in a television, um, and I can only imagine what somebody does overseas when they hear some of those uh, negative view about you know how the U.S. people are. I don't think that's true at all. You know, but even sometimes I have to remind myself the same thing. It's like, that's not true at all. You're just getting provoked by somebody to believe something. Well, it's you have a decision to make. Do you believe that? Do you get provoked? Do you believe that? Or do you just say, no, I will do my own research and find out that, you know, there's a distance between Seinfeld and Baywatch (laughs) and they're not in the same city, you know? And the other aspect as well is that there's a lot of diversity. Like you can be in Germany on holidays and then you see a group of loud Americans and then your shortcut thinking wants to tell you, oh, Americans are all loud and obnoxious. Well, no, that group of Americans maybe were loud and obnoxious. But when you live in a place and you see the diversity of people in a place, you start to appreciate that, no, you just got to look at people as individuals, really. So funny, you know, as you said that, I'm thinking about the time I was in Venice, uh, took the train outside of Venice to go to Pado up north. And uh, there was some loud, obnoxious American on the train. And I'm living in Europe at that point. So I was like, oh, my God, look at those loud, obnoxious American. And I'm just being quiet to myself. But I'm yelling at them inside of my head like, oh, stop being so loud, you rude Americans. Um, but it, it's natural. I think it just happens. And and there's always this need for people to tell stories and tell these stories uh, uh, c- continuously, at least the contrary points at max. But, you know. That's how we. That's how we keep a civilization going. You know, we we tell a t- uh, we tell a big story about the civilizations that we're part of, and that's how you keep a civilization going because you're telling a story of a civilization that's worth keeping up with. You know, um, when we stop telling those stories, is when you start hearing misinformation. You start seeing uh, fake news and fake believers. You know. Um, Flat earthers, if I may say so. Um, <laughs> we'll not go there today. <laughs> but, but the point is, you know, the stories are very necessary to tell. And I left military just just to do that, to be an ambassador in a different uniform, to tell the story of what it is that I've experienced. Um, and things doesn't have to be like the way it is today. Um, I think we just, we're just lacking a lot of storytellers. We have a lot of CEOs. We have a lot of lawyers who tell a lot of good stories. But we don't have a stories of storytellers of you know communities and and people of bringing the communities together, because that's that's how you merge communities together is by storytelling. That's a really good point because it seems like most things in the media, particularly in the professional media, is really centered around conflict and belligerence and left versus right. Profit. Yeah. Yeah, because once Profit. you yeah once you uh, arouse people's emotional brain, you get right. them riled up and you get them scared and they want to hear what you have to say. And it's not that you have anything yeah. uh, anything wise to say. It's just that you're riling them up to sell newspapers. Yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll go back to you know. I think me and you talked about system one and system two, but that's too deep into that conversation. But let's just say what I said earlier about uh, you know media. Media has profit to make. So does a CEO. So does a lawyer. Uh, a lawyer is not going to get paid by telling the wrong story. They have to tell the right story so they can win. 
Uh, CEO have to sell the right product. They have to market the right product. And it doesn't matter if the product is good or not, but he, that's a story. So if we have more of them and we have very few of uh, community storytellers to bring communities together, th- th- that's the that's the inequality, right? Um, to bring bring up as many storytellers as possible. Like say, for example, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Carl Sagan. What are they doing? They're They're telling their story in a way that not only do they profit personally, but it profits a community, right? Um, if community buys it, oh, great. You know, now now you find another community that believes the same ideas and same science, same same story. Now you come together without any profit. There's no profit in that. Like there's no moneymaker. Just like it's something that you build, the, bring the community together, you grow bigger, right? Um, where... As a lawyer, as a media, as a CEO, uh, not, not bad-mouthing them, not saying anything negative about them, but what they do is they divide communities because that's how they stake their ground, right? They say, well, I'm a lawyer. I'm going to have to win this part of the population, so I'm going to have to divide this population against the other part of the population. Same with the marketing products, you know? Uh, you use Nivea or do you use Old Spice? Well, I'm going to have to divide you saying you're a Nivea customer and you don't use Old Spice at all. Um, and and that, that goes on and on. But, you know, we need to equalize that. We need to have both. We need to have these marketing uh, pro- marketing people. We need to have the lawyers. But we also need to have community storytellers that brings the communities together. Yeah, that's a really good message to end on. And Asif, I want to thank you so much for chatting with us today on the podcast. And I also want to thank everyone for listening. And you can find us on social media and like our Facebook page, share your favorite episodes. And until the next journey, ciao.